This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Uh, so we are thrilled to have Casey set with us to discuss her new book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Casey's work has appeared in numerous publications, including The New York Times and The New Yorker. Um, the book itself has made several appearances recently in The New York Times, including on the bestsellers list where it debuted last week at number six for the new hardcover nonfiction. And in The Times reviewer, um, Michael Lewis writes about how Furious Hours is both a book about Harper Lee's failure to write this book and a book that would have been Harper Lee's book, if you can imagine it that way. Uh, and he writes about Harper's Lee's failure, uh, quote, that this is where the book makes its little giant magical leap. And it goes from being a superbly written true crime story to, this, to the sort of story that even Lee would have been proud to write. So no pressure to become legendary at all there. Uh, so please welcome me in joining Casey Sapp. Um, truly an honor to be at Politics and Prose. Um, the independent bookstore in the town where I went to high school on the Eastern Shore has closed. And so actually for a few years now, Politics and Prose has felt like my hometown store. So it's it's nice to be here. And I want to thank Lori for the introduction. It's true that I spent four years being cautioned that probably I wouldn't be able to finish this book since a writer as great as Harper Lee hadn't in all likelihood been able to. And I like that almost immediately on the book being published, the the fear and concern on my behalf turned to would I ever write another or would I be like Harper Lee and take 50 years to do it? So it's um, it's it's been truly a pleasure to learn about Harper Lee's work on this case and to learn about her life in general. And I'm mindful that um, I know at least one person in this room knew her. Um, so I, I tread lightly in, in events like this because it's often the case during the Q&A that someone pops up with knowledge of this case or knowledge of her that um, exceeds mine. So I hope if you fall into that category, you'll speak publicly or approach me after because it's truly a delight. And it's clear to me, even after four years of exhaustive research, there is so much more to learn about her, her life and her work on the Maxwell case. Um, what I like to do at these events is, because so many of you probably are here just for Harper Lee, um, I like to spend a little bit of time with the other two characters in the book, um, the first of whom is the Reverend Willie Maxwell. And Reverend Maxwell is sort of the impetus for this whole book because um, she was born in 1925 in one of the most rural counties in Alabama, Coosa County. And... He led a fairly typical life until in 1970, he was accused of killing his first wife and then would go on to be accused of killing a second wife, a brother, a nephew, um, and a stepdaughter. So those suspicious deaths and the um, criminal trials surrounding them and the civil litigation surrounding some insurance payments, uh, he, he held large life insurance policies on those individuals, form the first third of the book. And I, I really sit you down in Coosa County and you learn about his childhood and you learn about his life. And then he hands the baton over to his lawyer, um, a man named Tom Radney, who represented him for about 10 years um, in all of that civil and criminal litigation. And Big Tom Radney is an interesting character in his own right. And his part of the book looks at 
mid-century politics in Alabama because he had a pretty incredible career. Um, he served in the state legislature. He ran unsuccessfully for, for lieutenant governor of Alabama, but he was a Kennedy liberal in the Wallace years. So you you sit with his political career and you learn about his ambition and his idealism. And it explains why when he settles back down into small town lawyering, that he does it in such an epic and grand way, which is why when the Reverend Maxwell was gunned down at the funeral of his last alleged victim, Tom Radney, um, having lost one of his clients, found a new one by defending the vigilante who murdered the Reverend. So, so Tom is a kind of bridge between the Reverend story and, and Harper Lee's. So I'm going to read a little bit from the Reverend section, a little bit from Tom's section, and then I promise you, if you are here for Harper Lee, we're going to get to her too. Um, but for now, I'm going to pick up in um, 1971, and this is a little ways after the Reverend's first wife um, had has, has been found murdered and he's been tried and acquitted for her murder. And that acquittal was confounding and confusing for the police officers who expected to convict him because they had a lot of evidence and they had a really good witness who was supposed to say that he was out all night. And that witness, when she got on the stand, changed her testimony and provided the Reverend with an alibi. And her change of opinion was was confusing until a few months after that trial, she became the second Mrs. Maxwell. Um, and she became the second Mrs. Maxwell after her husband mysteriously died. And you can imagine for folks around Coosa County that all of these coincidences amounted to something more than coincidence. So I'm, I'm going to read to you a little bit um, from this part of the book where at this point, you know, there are already three suspicious deaths attributable to the Reverend. And um, if you don't know much about the book, you'll know in the first clause I'm about to read what became the dominant explanation for why the Reverend was getting away with all of this. Whether or not the Reverend Willie Maxwell was actually a voodoo priest, he lived in a community willing to believe that he was. Plenty of good Christians in Coosa County shook out their pillows at night and scrubbed their steps in the morning to fend off spirits and spells, warned their children that the hoodoo man would get them if they stayed out too late, and told their spouses that they would lay a trick on them if they did not stop drinking or lying or lying about drinking. Coincidence just wasn't a word that rolled off tongues in Alabama as easily as conjuring. So when Willie Maxwell was acquitted of murdering his first wife and remarried the young widow of his conveniently deceased neighbor, a lot of people were convinced that he had used voodoo to fix the jury, put death on his neighbor's trail, and charm a much younger woman. Maybe Maxwell had burned a court case candle or used law stay away oil. Perhaps he had nailed a photograph of his neighbor to the north-facing side of a tree and added another nail every morning for nine mornings until the man weakened and died. As for the much younger, much prettier neighbor, well, he may have sprinkled wishing oil on a sample of her handwriting, worn it for nine days by his heart, and then buried it under his front steps. However unlikely such theories might seem, they were more comforting than the alternative. For many of the reverend's neighbors, it was better to believe that in the face of conjuring, there was nothing that law enforcement and the judicial system could do than to believe that in the face of such terrible crimes, they had not done enough. Supernatural explanations flourish where law and order fails, which is why as time passed and more people died, the stories about the reverend Maxwell grew stronger, stranger, and if possible, more sinister. The most widespread one began like a fairy tale with seven sisters and seven brothers. 
William Maxwell, people said, was the seventh son of a seventh son, a numerological curiosity that meant he had been born with power over life and death. To augment this natural gift, he supposedly went down to New Orleans to study voodoo with the Seven Sisters, a fearsome septet well known throughout the South. Although their history and even their existence are disputed, stories about the sisters have circulated since the 1920s. They were said to be clairvoyant, ageless, and available to sell their blessings, curses, candles, and potions to anyone who came calling at their seven identical dwellings on Coliseum Street in the Garden District. Dwellings you can still go see today. I actually did that after my reading in New Orleans, but I can assure you none of what follows happened when I was there. Out-of-state license plates were always pulling up there, and people came and went at all hours of the day and night. Some of the visitors were just customers, but others were said to be disciples, including supposedly one lean, eloquent, well-dressed man from Coosa County. Never mind that the Reverend Willie Maxwell actually had just four brothers, plus four numerologically inconvenient sisters. The rumors about him grew taller than the loblolly pines around Lake Martin. Some said he hung ch white chickens upside down from the pecan trees outside his house to keep away unwanted spirits, that he painted blood on his doorsteps to keep away the authorities. Others said he carried envelopes filled with deadly powders. He had a whole room at home just for voodoo lined with jars labeled love, hate, friendship, and death. If he got sick, he drank someone else's blood to feel better. Drive by his front door and the headlights of your car would go dark. Say a crossword against him and he would lay a trick on you. Look him in the eye and he would curse you forever. He could move faster than was humanly possible, traveling the 150 miles from Birmingham to Atlanta in 20 minutes. If he needed to vanish quicker than that, he could turn into a black cat. And unless, you know, less, less you think that those are just the sorts of things that, you know, people in Alabama will say to a young reporter from Maryland when she comes down to look into all this. One of the most interesting things I found out about Harper Lee's time in town. So she caught on to this case um, not long after it happened. So when she came to town in 1977, she adopted a stray cat. And when she took that cat to Alexander City to the veterinarian, she told him that she was calling the cat. Reverend Maxwell, because it was a black cat. So those rumors were already, you know, the currency of the realm. And people had already started to talk about the Reverend that way. And I, I read that passage, not because the book is full of that kind of sensationalism or superstition, although I do find it very interesting. And the book looks at um, some really interesting folklore and um, religious history of the rural South. But I read it because I think it's clear what's going on already in 1971 around this part of Alabama, which is folks were terrified. And body after body piled up and people didn't know who the reverend had insurance on. They didn't know how he was getting away with it. They didn't know who would be next, um, which is why, you know, if you sit with that fear and terror for a little bit, it becomes slightly more explicable what happened in 1977, which is the reverend was gunned down at the funeral of his last alleged victim. Um, and and a vigilante stood up during that funeral and um, shot him three times in front of 300 people. And, you know, I, I think that that act is only explicable if you really sit with what was going on in the community. And it's so easy in hindsight to just say, well, they knew who it was and he should have been held responsible. But um, it wasn't clear that he would ever be um, convicted of a crime. And in fact, he was never convicted of a crime. And he made what in today's dollars is about a half a million dollars off these insurance policies. So he seemed to be getting away with it all. Um, 
and you know I mentioned to you that the same lawyer had represented him through all of those you know criminal episodes and civil episodes as well and I, I like to read a little bit from Tom's story because you know, part of how the Reverend got away with it, some people thought was Tom Radney was just a really good lawyer. And and he was a phenomenal trial attorney. And you can understand why he did not want to turn down the case of the vigilante. It was bound to be national news. You know, Newsweek sent a reporter down. The New York Times covered the murder. The Washington Post covered the murder of the Reverend. Jet Magazine sent someone down. It was, it was this big story. And, you know, the defense attorney who took this case was bound to make headlines. And, and Tom liked to make headlines. Um, but he also liked to win. So the part of his section that I would like to read is um, it's a couple weeks after the Reverend is murdered. It's June of 1977. And Tom Radney has taken this case of the vigilante and he's trying to figure out what the defense will be. In the weeks after Maxwell's funeral, the temperature in Alexander City barely fell below 100 degrees. June's hot spell turned to July's heat wave. The hayfields that generally had two cuttings by midsummer hadn't yet had one. Cotton was a third of its usual height. The corn had dried up entirely, and most of the soybean crop hadn't yet been sown. Dust devils swirled along the sides of the highways. The sun rose up every morning into an already smoldering day, scorched everything beneath it, and set into a stifling night. Clouds occasionally formed and threatened, but the rains never came. By the third week of July, the drought was so severe that President Carter declared both Coosa County and Tallapoosa County, not to mention the rest of Alabama and Georgia, disaster areas. The heat that summer made the farmers crazy, made the loggers crazy, made the mill workers crazy, made basically everyone crazy except the Iceman and the kids down in Lake Martin, which is how one day Big Tom Radney settled on his defense of Robert Burns. In the middle of July, when Burns was indicted by a grand jury in Tallapoosa County, he did as his lawyer told him and pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Then Burns walked out of the courthouse in blue bib overalls and a Caterpillar baseball cap on a $10,000 bond. Insanity isn't an easy thing to prove, and it is often the defense of last resort. The belief that madness can be exculpatory is an ancient one so ancient that it was carved into the Code of Hammurabi 1,700 years before the birth of Christ, alongside the notion of proportional retaliation, lex talionis, an eye for an eye. But by the time Tom Radney invoked it, the insanity defense had been out of favor for quite some time. Queen Victoria had tried to stifle it in the mid-19th century out of fear that it was encouraging would-be assassins. A hundred years later, President Richard Nixon had the same idea. Too many defendants had turned out to be insane only until acquittal, and prosecutors and psychiatrists alike had come to worry that the defense was just a way of letting murderers get away with murder. Around the country, there were examples of defendants sent to state mental hospitals after a jury decided they were insane, only to have the hospital staff release them after diagnosing them as sane. In response, some states, Idaho, Kansas, Montana, and Utah, had already banned the insanity plea entirely. But Alabama still allowed it, and Big Tom decided it was his best bet. In reality, it was probably his only bet. His client had brought a pistol into a chapel, shot a man three times in front of hundreds of people, and then confessed to the police not only once, but twice. A first-year law student could have successfully prosecuted the case in his sleep. But Tom's opposing counsel in the murder trial of Robert Burns was not a first-year law student, to put it mildly. 
By the time the trial started, Thomas F. Young had already served 16 years as district attorney, and he was just starting another six-year term. He, too, went by Tom, and he was said to have tried more criminal cases than any other DA in Alabama history. He also had something to prove when it came to the Maxwell case. He had been the district attorney who failed to bring timely charges against the reverend in the death of his first wife. He and Tom Radney had faced off in 50 50 or so other murder trials, and although both men had respected records, they had very different styles. Radney is silk and Young is sandpaper, Alvin Ben wrote in the Alexander City Outlook, the local newspaper. Ben was a man well acquainted with contrasts. A Jewish reporter raised in Pennsylvania Amish country, he'd headed south to cover the civil rights movement but stayed to raise a family. He'd listened nervously as KKK members denounced Zionist Jews at a rally but then invited him drinking afterward. And he'd interviewed the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and the police commissioner Bull Connor once for the same story. But even Ben had seldom seen two men diverge as dramatically as the two Toms. Tom Young wasn't about to lose a murder case when he had hundreds of potential witnesses, and Tom Radney wasn't about to lose a case with the whole state watching. Despite what Pop Boilers and Perry Mason would lead you to believe, Alvin Ben wrote in his editorial, most trials resemble warmed over grits, and it takes some doing to stay awake. But the case of Robert Burns was bound to be different. And it, it, and it was for a lot of reasons, um, almost all of which you'll kind of find. This is a part of the book where, because I've always loved John Grisham, I just settle into the kind of courtroom drama mode. And there's a really, you know, kind of delightful transcript of that trial. And I think that it it is an interesting example of a kind of moral dilemma where you think you might know how you feel about vigilante justice. But if you sit for a minute and try and imagine what you would have done if you were on that jury, it's 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 quite dynamic and interesting. And I think both attorneys make very compelling arguments. So I, I tried in that moment to sort of slow down time because much of the book moves very quickly and you're learning about um, – a lot of people and a lot of kind of epochs of Alabama history. So it's a moment where it slows down. Um, but the other reason, of course, that the Burns case was was different from most trials in that part of Alabama and different from most trials in general was that um, Harper Lee was there. And she had found out about the case that summer and she had made arrangements to go down to Alexander City. And she started looking into the case and she introduced herself to a few people at that trial. Um, and in the months that followed, she really, you know, she was the bell of the ball in Alexander City and she got to know people in town and she got to know the lawyer, Tom Radney. She interviewed some of the reverend's relatives. She interviewed the law enforcement officers who had worked the original case. And she put in this tremendous amount of energy, um, and reporting and, um, what I'd like to read you from her section, you know, I, I beat the bounds of her work on this case and you learn a lot about her life, but you learn a lot about her time in Alexander City. And, you know, she crossed paths with a lot of interesting people in the time she was working on this, um, one of whom is someone some of you all might know if you're Alabama expats, but um, I had been told that an Alabama senator had been in touch with Harper Lee when she was working on this. And so I did what I always do when someone is a potential source over the age of like 85, which is, you know, I wrote a very careful letter in size 22 font that said, you know, who I am and what I was doing. And, you know, because my handwriting is atrocious, you know, here's how you can contact me and all of this. And I got a phone call at midnight, which 
is to be fair, 11 p.m. Alabama time. And um, the woman on the other end of the phone wrote herself into the book because she was just such a tour de force. And although her intersection with Harper Lee was really brief, she just brings to life this moment and and this sense of, you know, how widespread the knowledge was of Harper Lee's work because she, she found out how to find her in Alex City at this moment. And I, I bring up Marianne Pittman Allen's kind of forceful personality because what I'm about to read has two curse words. And I want to assure you that they are from Marianne Pittman Allen, not Casey Sepp. So accept my apologies. And if you can forgive her, she was 91 when she uttered them and she's since passed. So she's too dead for you to be mad at her. But um, I am going to curse twice. And, you know, again, straight from the senator's mouth. Um, The other thing to tell you about this is... um, this is, I'm going to read you a whole chapter, which sounds more painful than it is. It's quite brief. It's the shortest chapter in the book. Um, and it's called Disappearing Act, um, which will make sense near the end. So if you just hold that thought, Disappearing Act, I promise it's not about black cats or the reverend. It's about Harper Lee. So just hold that title in your mind for, for about a minute and 45 seconds. It was the damnedest thing, but Marianne Pittman Allen couldn't find a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird anywhere in Washington. There wasn't yet a politics and prose, that's why. <laughs> Mrs. James Browning Allen was the second wife of the junior senator from the great state of Alabama, and in that role she was expected not only to attend the ladies of the Senate luncheon, but to present the First Lady of the United States, Rosalind Carter, with a book representative of her home state. It was obvious to Allen which books she should bring since there was no Alabama tale more famous than the one about the adventures of a tomboy named Scout and her heroic lawyer of a father, Atticus Finch. But even though there were millions of copies of Nell Harper Lee's novel in circulation at the time, Allen couldn't find a single one for sale in the nation's capital. Allen was Lee's age and they had both dropped out of the University of Alabama around the same time. Lee had been a student at the law school and quit to write. Allen had been a journalism student and quit to have children. Her first marriage didn't take, and she had three mouths to feed, so she began working as a reporter for a handful of newspapers around Birmingham. That's how she met her second husband, who was then Lieutenant Governor James Browning Allen, a widower with two children of his own. She heard church bells on her way to interview him for a story and hoped it wasn't a sign, but four months later they were married, and four years after that they were moving to Washington for him to take his seat in the United States Senate. Allen didn't like to make a big production out of her role as a lady of the Senate, but she also didn't want to embarrass her husband or her state, so she was determined to bring the right gift to Mrs. Carter. When she couldn't find the book, she went looking for its author. Allen knew that she and Lee had a mutual friend from their Tuscaloosa days, and she thought that he might know how to get a hold of her. Nearly everyone in the state would have recognized John Forney's voice, and the half who were Alabama fans basically thought it was the voice of God. That is a joke that plays much better when I'm doing events in Alabama. And I was hoping enough of you were from there that you'd know who John Forty was. Um, Forty had been calling the play-by-play for the Crimson Tide for over a decade. John, Allen said when the sportscaster answered, do you know where Nell Lee is? I've simply got to find a copy of her book. After she explained why, Forney told her that Lee was in Alexander City. Allen knew Alex City well. Her first husband had been born and raised there. In the years when her own father was building levees on the Mississippi River and living with her mother in a tent on its banks, her ex-father-in-law had been hobnobbing in the Alabama State Senate. After that, Jay Sanford Mullins had gone to Alex City to serve for more than three decades as the town's attorney. 
As best as Alan could remember, the most exciting thing that had ever happened around Lake Martin was her ex-father-in-law climbing into the bed of a truck to deliver one of his speeches, unfailingly fiery numbers that could draw an audience from three counties. But the oratorical wizard of Chanahatchee Creek had long since died, and she couldn't imagine what would entice a world-famous author to Tallapoosa County. What in the world, Alan asked Forney incredulously, is she doing in Alex City? Lee was there writing, Forney said, but if Alan could give him a little time, he would try and get in touch with her. A few hours later, Forney called back and said that he had tracked Lee down at the Horseshoe Bend Motel. Maybe she knew it. It was that hexagon-shaped number out on Highway 280. He had been given the go-ahead to give her the writer's private telephone number. It was like she was hiding behind damn trees down there, Alan remembers, but I got the secret number and we talked for over an hour. They talked about small-town lawyers, since Alan wondered if Lee knew anything about her ex-father-in-law. And they talked about journalism, since Lee was a regular reader of Alan's syndicated column, Reflections of a News Hen. When Alan finally got around to asking why Lee was hanging her hat in Alex City, the author wouldn't say much, just that she had been there for a few months, working on something that had to do with a voodoo preacher. Lee did say, though, that she would make sure a copy of her novel got to the nation's capital by May 15, 1978, in time for the luncheon. True to her word, Lee sent a signed first edition of her book, inscribed on the front page to Rosalind Carter, along with a verse from one of the hymns to wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Mrs. Allen presented the book to Mrs. Carter at the Ladies of the Senate luncheon, which, as it happens, was the last one of those Allen would ever attend. Two weeks later, after she and her husband had returned to Alabama for the summer recess, Senator James Browning Allen died of a heart attack at their beach house in Gulf Shores. Not long after that, Governor George Wallace appointed Marion Pittman Allen to her husband's seat, making her the state's second female senator. Overwhelmed both personally and professionally, she forgot all about the Pulitzer Prize winner holed up at the Horseshoe Bend Motel. It was easy enough to forget about Harper Lee in those days. To Kill a Mockingbird had come out 18 years before, and in all that time, Lee had published almost nothing else. Three short essays for two glossy magazines, two tiny profiles that were favors for her friend Truman Capote, one satirical recipe for cracklin' bread in a novelty cookbook. In nearly two decades, that was the only writing she had put into the world. No second novel had followed the first, and she hadn't given an interview in 14 years. The last time she had so much as agreed to be quoted in print was another favor for Capote. In 1976, he had asked Lee to sit with him during an interview for People magazine, which was running a profile of him. She had said a total of 12 words on the record, seven of which were, We are bound by a common anguish. To Kill a Mockingbird had made Lee extravagantly wealthy, but she wouldn't have known it to look around her life. When she was in New York, she lived in a small, rent-controlled apartment on the Upper East Side. When she went back to Alabama, she stayed with one of her sisters in a modest brick ranch house in their hometown of Monroeville. No matter where she was, she avoided the press, her fans, and anything that seemed too literary. She tried to live her life as if she had never published one of the most popular novels in American history. In 1962, the year the film adaptation of her book came out, the one that earned Gregory Peck an Oscar and further fixed her portrait of a small southern town in the nation's collective memory, Lee told a reporter for the Mobile Register that she wanted to disappear, and she basically had. But now, alone in a motel in the middle of nowhere, 
with the world no longer watching. She was nearly as free as she had been in the tiny flat where she had written To Kill a Mockingbird. That was what Lee chose not to tell Marianne Pittman Allen that day on the telephone. Harper Lee was in Alexander City because finally, all these years later, she was going to write another book. So that's the business I have to read to you, which just sort of sets out the the case and introduces you to Harper Lee's time in town. But um, I'm happy to take questions about any of it, about her life around this case, um, about the Reverend Maxwell, about Tom Radney. Um, there are, I know, some people in this room who can speak to Alabama politics better than I can. So again, I'll tread lightly, um, but feel free to ask whatever's on your mind. And if you've had a chance to read the book, um, if there's anything I can explain, I'm happy to do it. Um, I should also just thank my parents for bringing the cake in case, I forgot to say that at the beginning, but um, very sweetly they're here. Um, I was born and raised and actually still live on the Eastern shore. Um, so that's why this is our sort of local event. So don't, don't ask me anything too hard. You'll embarrass me in front of my parents. Oh gosh, there's a lawyer asking a question, lay it on me. Sure. Um, so the question is, um, what what brought me to the Maxwell case and kind of what, what started the process of writing the book? And the truth is, in 2015, I think like a lot of people who loved Harper Lee's work and I had grown up, I was obsessed with Mockingbird. And I looked a little bit, it's hard to believe now, but I looked a little bit like Mary Badham as a kid. And so I just identified with the actress who had played Scout in the film. And um, my parents indulged this by like getting me a pocket watch. And so I was obsessed with it. And I'd always wanted to see um, an Roville, the town where Harper Lee was born and raised, and um, which, you know, not that fiction is autobiographical, but I knew that Monroeville bore some resemblance to Makeham, the town in the novel. And I'd always wanted to see it. So in 2015, when Ghost at a Watchman was announced, um, I went down to Monroeville to write a story about that new manuscript, um, because there were a lot of questions about the provenance of that book and about her condition at the time and her ability to consent to publication. And while I was down there, actually got put in touch with um, some of Tom Radney's family, so the lawyer at the heart of the book. And I wrote a short story for the, um, a short article for the website of The New Yorker about um, what amounted to a question concerning um, some of Tom's materials. So Tom Radney, in an effort to aid Harper Lee's writing a book about this case and about um, his role in it, had given her a lot of materials while she was in town. So in 1977, he had handed over basically all of the legal paperwork he had. And Tom died in 2011, and his family had been trying to get all of that material back. Um, and they had been undertaking a tremendous, you know, familial archival effort around his political career and around his lawyering. And they were, you know, putting together scrapbooks and, and assembling a lot of material. And they had never been able to figure out what the heck happened to the stuff he gave Harper Lee. Um, so I wrote a short article then. And the last line of that article said the Radney family is sanguine that if Harper Lee you know, never wrote the book, someone else will. And it was truly one of those moments where you're like speaking to yourself, where it was like, well, why am I encouraging someone else to write this tremendously interesting book when maybe I could do it? And I love religion and I love politics and I love literary biographies. So it felt to me like a couple of books in one. And I'm sure that that'll be frustrating for some of you if you're like genre purists, you just want true crime or you just want biography because the, the book is a little promiscuous in terms of genre and moves between those. And I just felt like these are three 
different characters, but their intersection is is just so interesting and fruitful. And, and by setting them against one another, we can learn a lot about Alabama and about these different spheres for understanding the world. Um, but it but it grew out of some reporting around Go Set a Watchman. Was Go Set a Watch was Go Set a Watchman the book that she was in the middle of writing? I thought it had something to do with Mockingbird. Um, so Go Set a Watchman, yeah, so these are two distinct projects. So right. Go Set a Watchman was a manuscript that she had completed in 1958, and it's a little too strong to say it's a draft of Mockingbird. It was a distinct project. It involves the same characters. It has the same setting, but a very different chronology. So I'm sure a lot of you had the chance to read Go Set a Watchman, and it was a little confusing when it came out because it seems in chronology to be a sequel. Scout and Atticus and all the other characters are aged up. Time has passed from To Kill a Mockingbird, but she actually wrote that book first and completed no edits. It was a sort of time capsule that was then published in 2015. And the case at the heart of Furious Hours um, is is part of a book she was calling The Reverend. So it was a nonfiction project that she undertook um, in starting in 1977. So quite a long time after Ghost at a Watchman and even after To Kill a Mockingbird. So um, there's, a, there's a great letter I quote in the book from 1958 around the time she was kind of moving between Watchmen. Watchmen and Mockingbird. And the 60s were really a productive period of time for Harper Lee, although none of those projects resulted in publication. She started a lot of really strange and interesting novels. And that letter from 1958 sets out this kind of audacious itinerary of what she would be doing for the next 15 years. And if you think you know Harper Lee, I can assure you when you read that letter, you don't. You know, it's everything from a novel of the United Nations to India 1910. And they're really strange. And, and you know, they, they are not Makeham County novels. It's it's a very um, ambitious list of projects. And she seems to have toyed around with those in the 60s and tried to maybe work on a bridge between Mockingbird and Watchmen, the kind of interstitial years of the, the Finch family. But by the 1970s, she's 77, she's turned to this other project. Um, so so I, I meant only that when I first went to Alabama, I was reporting on Ghost Head of Watchmen. And then I wrote a second ah. story about the Reverend. And did you have access to all her papers? Um, well, and had they been gathered and, you know, organized? Um, what's your definition of organized? I mean, they're not uh, so they're not publicly available. I mean, mm -hmm. this is this is one of these interesting things. And I think it's surprising to folks, unfortunately, for those of us who admire a writer like Harper Lee or, you know, if there are scholars in the room, you know, if you want to do research on Robert E. Lee, for that matter, um, private archives are private and there is no, right. you know, there, there is no mandate for them to be publicly available. So in the case of a writer like Harper Lee, um, a book like mine is built from what is publicly available. So friends and some of her family decide to share letters or they share manuscript pages or um, they direct you to other people who have those materials or some of those you know, papers or letters or things are donated to the Library of Congress, the New York Public Library. There are some of her letters at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, some at the archives in Montgomery. And, you know, I was able to amass a lot of material because when you write a letter to someone, even though you retain the copyright, you send the letter out and someone else has it and can share it with a researcher like me. But the Harper Lee archive, official archive in terms of the estate is not public. Thank you. Sure. So the question is, what attracts me to true crime? Um, I left off my favorite genre, which is um, 
natural history. And the book actually opens, if I haven't already tried your patience with everything else, with a kind of John McPhee-esque riff on the Tallapoosa River and the flooding of Lake Martin. So um, brace yourselves. Um, if, if you if you don't like that, you know, if you don't like Terrence Malick movies, just like skip ahead and I'll, I'll spoil it for you by telling you the reservoir gets filled. Um, and there is a lake there. If you go today, you can see it. But um, true crime is an interesting question. And, and the truth of the matter is probably the genre I'm, I have a little bit of an allergy to and the, the thing I was most trepidatious about with the book. Um, and interestingly enough, it's a genre that Harper Lee had a lot of um, feelings and opinions about. Um, so I think actually one of the nice things in the book is there's a fairly conspicuous chapter about the the problems of that genre and some of the journalistic and ethical concerns around it. And her own opinions were, were formed not only, so her father, in addition to being a lawyer, um, actually owned the local newspaper. So she grew up around newspapers and editorial writing and um, was, was raised up to believe in the difference between fiction and non fiction and maintain that same, you know, hard distinction at the University of Alabama when she was writing editorials for the student newspaper. But her actual um, kind of apprenticeship in true crime, some of you probably already know this, many of you probably already know this, was in 1959, she went with Capote out to Kansas when he was working on In Cold Blood. Um, and some of the most interesting letters in the book are um, letters that are held by Yale University um, at the Beinecke, and they were donated by Truman Capote's fact checker at The New Yorker. And their letters Harper Lee wrote where um, she is very... Um, deliberate in her criticisms of In Cold Blood. And having been along for the reporting, um, she expresses concerns about the exaggerations and the fabrications in that book. Um, so she was there not only for that first reporting trip in 1959, shortly after the murders, but she returned with him several times. And she interviewed a lot of the sources and produced over 100 pages of reporting material that he ultimately made use of in the book. And it's a very rewarding experience. If you're ever in New York, you can go to the New York Public Library and see them. And you can see the diagram she drew of the clutter house, the notes she made during the trial of Hickok and Smith. She was tremendously involved in that reporting. So she was in a very strong position to know what people had actually said and the kinds of decisions Capote made about sympathy and perspective. And, you know, I think that more interesting than my feelings about true crime are hers. And, and I think that you will find a very, very nuanced discussion of what choices writers make and what um, compromises they make with material. And ultimately, I think it's some of what she found frustrating about the Maxwell case, her uh, fidelity to the truth and her desire to have, you know, a deliberately nonfiction account that did not speculate, that relied only on fact. It's quite hard to do with a with a case like the Maxwell case. Um, so there's a there's a there's a deliberate discussion of genre there. And I don't agree with Harper Lee about everything. I don't agree with Harper Lee about most things. But of, of that, there's not much daylight between us. Um, and I think that it's it's not clear to me why, but true crime is one of these genres where the temptations are strong and the violations sometimes of um, fact and fiction um, are pervasive. You know, it's quite often someone just today was asking me to speculate about the Reverend Maxwell's motive. And it's fine if you are deliberately flagging that as speculation. But the idea somehow I could know what motivated a man I never met who was murdered in 1977 is, is quite odd to me. And yet that's the expectation a lot of readers bring to the genre of true crime that you will explain and elucidate and, and proffer explanations that it seems to me are not often available. 
Um, but having said that, you know, there's a historical riff on true crime in here where I love the Gospels and the Gospels are true crime, right? Like you sit through a trial, you learn a lot about somebody's purported guilt or innocence. And I think in that sense, true crime is a, is a very ancient genre and it tells us a lot about how we relate to one another as a society and how we handle transgression and what values we have around morality and justice. And when it's deep, and meaningful like that when it's not just sensational cases or dead bodies or blood and gore it's it's a very important genre to me and very interesting um so great question although yeah i mean the long and the short of it is i'm much happier in literary biography than i am in true crime it's why the book gets longer as the sections go on i kind of find my my more comfortable gears i don't know whether this is speculation or uh, what but um so our life was characterized by not writing a lot after writing a great book. Uh, is it your sense that her not writing the book about this crime uh, stemmed from something very different from her not writing for the previous 30 years? Or, or is that speculation? The texture of not writing? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I should just say, first off, um, and, and there's a... There's a um, fairly discreet paragraph about this in the book, but um, a lot of people very close to Harper Lee believe she wrote The Reverend. She wrote the entire thing um, and that she chose not to publish it. Um, so already they would say there's a distinction between publishing and writing. And someone like Harper Lee, you know, if you put her in the category of a Salinger, he continued to write. He just didn't publish. Um, and I think that for folks who are interested in the question of her archive, there is the potential for there to be any number of manuscripts, not just the Reverend, but some others. Um, so, you know, the particular reasons for her choosing not to publish the Reverend go something like this. The racial politics were too scandalous and her publisher didn't want to publish it. That seems very unlikely to me. Um, I think they would have published anything, but, but that's what some people think. Um, some people think that she was afraid, um, I read you where she's at the Horseshoe Bend Motel. And what I don't tell you in that particular moment of the book is that part of what drew her to the Maxwell case is she actually had family in Alexander City and that motel was owned by her niece's husband. Um, so she stayed for a while in a cabin on Lake Martin, but she also had free room and board at the Horseshoe Bend Motel. Um, so she could spend a lot of time in town. But Another reason people say she wrote the book and didn't publish it was that the reverend had a living accomplice and she was afraid either for her own safety or for the safety of her family in town. Those are some of the reasons. Um, a more general reason offered for her refusal to publish was that she did not want to be you know, subject to criticism, either from the public or, f or from the kind of critical classes. So I just think there are a lot of people close to her who, who would not want me to presume that not publishing was equal to not writing. Now, having said that, there's a lot of correspondence in the book about you know, letters she wrote to other people talking about the Maxwell case. And one of my favorites is a letter she wrote to Gregory Peck. Um, and, and Gregory Peck donated his letters to the Oscar Library um, in California. And um, a couple of them pertain to the Maxwell case. And there's one where she says um, she's afraid of getting sued. <laughs> She doesn't say who she's afraid of getting sued by, but boy, did that plant the idea in my head that like maybe I should be afraid of being sued. So far, it hasn't happened. Um, but there's another letter where she says, you know, my publisher um, wants 
uh, gore and autopsies. My agents want another bestseller and I want to feel like I haven't defrauded the reader. So I think there are intrinsic, you know, whatever kind of general concerns about writing she had, there were things intrinsic to the Maxwell case that made it difficult to write about, especially when she set herself to the task of, you know, pure old fashioned journalism of the strictest factual kind. And I really get into that in the book, but, um, I'm not trying to be coy. If I had a manuscript, I would tell you about it. But I do feel that I have to honor the perspective of people who knew her at the time who say they think she wrote the whole thing. Um, and, you know, and some of those folks are reliable narrators who she um, she had. You guys probably know about her oldest sister, Alice, who lived in Monroeville and managed her affairs. She had another sister who lived in Eufaula, Alabama, who um, at a certain point when she wasn't making headway on the Reverend Louise Connor had raised two boys who um, both you know, went to graduate school and had very successful careers. So she basically says, you know, Nell Harper, you're going to come here and work. And she won't let her go fishing in the morning. And she's preparing all of her meals and she's trying to help her be productive. And people who know Louise say Louise read the whole thing. It was written at her kitchen table and it was better than in cold blood. So those are people, you know, again, I, I don't think it's like Black Cat where they're just telling that to the reporter from Maryland. That's what they believe. They were in Eufaula at the time. They have reason to believe it's true. Um, so there, there's that's one poll of kind of knowledge or speculation. And the other poll is people who were closer at the time who just say that um, this was really a dark time in Harper Lee's life. And while she was energized by the reporting and really nurtured by the social aspects of this project, when it came time to write, she couldn't do it. And and she never produced more than a few pages because she was struggling with depression and drinking and the, the particular demands of this book. And that actually she couldn't overcome those things. And the same things that had made it hard for her to write in the 60s ultimately caught up with her in this project, too. Um, so there is a tiny bit of speculation in the book. I don't want to, I don't want to pretend there isn't some, but it's not mine. It comes, it comes on good authority. So we actually do have time for a couple more questions, but if you would, well, please I got to the take microphone. this one cause I'm, I'm going to embarrass, uh, this is Diane McWhorter in the middle of the room. And Diane, if you don't know her is one of Alabama's best writers. Diane won the Pulitzer for a tremendous, um, history of the Birmingham campaign of the civil rights movement. And Diane also outed herself recently as a dear friend of Nell Harper Lee's. So she's here and I can assure you everything she knows is in the book unless she's got something new to tell me. But I'm so curious what Diane's going to ask me in public and not in private. I want to know what, uh, what was the book tour like in Alabama? Were you, <laughs> what, are, what are people saying? How are, how are people reacting to the book? And also, were you there when the, um, I think the abortion ban was after you had left? Yeah, yeah. But could you feel that coming at all? Or Because I think of Alabama as being the best and the worst, and so you kind of were the living. Am I allowed to quote you back to you, or is that like inappropriate? <laughs> so to the first question, um, Normally when I do a reading like this, I, you guys didn't laugh, so I didn't have to chastise you at any point. You're such a serious, somber audience. But sometimes people get to laughing and I feel the kind of school marmish impulse to say it's a real story. And there are people whose families were um, very much affected by this. And to demonstrate that, so when I was in Alex City, um, one of the reverend's daughters came to the reading, all of Tom Radney's kids and some of his grandkids came to the reading, and Robert Burns, the vigilante who murdered the reverend, came to the reading. Um, and, you know, it is a lived story there. And, and some of the joyful aspects of that are, you know, people who 
shared stories about Harper Lee or showed me letters from when she was in town and came for pimento cheese sandwiches for lunch or came for dinner. You know, those people were there and some of the reporters who covered the case were there too. But I just think the kind of contours of this case it was lived very differently at the time in the black and the white community there. And then it was lived very differently by different families, um, which is all to say. So they all came. They all got their books signed. Um, everybody left alive. So I'll make a joke. Having told you not to joke about any of this, I'll make a joke. Um, and no, I mean, how's it being received? I think that so in 2015, when Ghost Had a Watchman was announced, everybody in Alex City thought that the new book by Harper Lee was going to be the reverend. <laughs> they had been waiting for it since 1977. And the idea that she was, quote, publishing a new book, they thought it was going to be the book about the Maxwell case. So I think that while almost everybody is disappointed this book is not by Harper Lee, they're just happy it's done and that there is a kind of larger conversation about it. And so far, most people who are in it have been happy that um, – it does what I set out to do, which is tell the truth about this place and about this case. Um, so it's been mostly fine. And, you know, to my frustration as a reporter, new letters walked into some of those events and people who I had never heard of suddenly, you know, piped up with, well, I met her when she was in Coosa County. And I was like, well, where were you four years ago when I was trying to find everybody who had interacted with her? Um, so all of that is. F What's that? Paperback. Paperback is spoken like a true writer. Um, no, but. Um, to answer your second question, so I alluded to Tom Radney's political career, and he is a tremendously interesting character, complex but interesting character. And, you know, one of his, um, I, I said his family was trying to put together his papers, and he has a tremendous family around Tallapoosa County, but um, one of his granddaughters in particular, like, worked on the Doug Jones campaign, ran the campaign of Walt Maddox, the guy who just lost the gubernatorial race in Alabama, who almost certainly if Walt were governor, he would have vetoed that bill. Um, and I think what's interesting for me, a lot of people would say, like, oh, what was it like to be in Alabama? And I think it's thanks to the Radney family that I met, you know, almost every Democrat in the state. And they were really friendly. And you just get that kind of secret tour of a red state when you're kind of talking to people who were so active in progressive politics. And, you know, in that sense, it's actually it's. I don't presume to know the politics of the people in this room, but um, it actually makes me quite hopeful. There are a lot of young people, and I'm sure maybe even some of you here have come to work for the federal government, but you plan to go back to Alabama. And there are a lot of people working very hard for equality and justice, and they're working on the Walt Maddox campaign, or they're running for um, municipal positions in their local community. And it's kind of nice with a guy like Tom that, you know, on the one hand, it is a very heartbreaking story about integration and equality in the 1960s. But um, the last speech of his political career, I can still kind of bring myself to tears thinking about because it is so full of optimism and it is so clear about the ways in which these movements are intergenerational. And they, they, they are never won by one person and they are won by generation after generation fighting for these things. And for that reason, you know, even though the abortion ban went into a it was voted. It obviously hasn't taken effect yet, but, um, you know, is talking to folks who are organizing protests and Diane, you'll be heartened to know, maybe you do know this, but like when the Muslim ban went into effect, you know, there were kids at Auburn organizing protests and, you know, they're energized and they're ambitious and hopeful. And I think in that sense, you know, Tom Radney, who lived long enough to be writing pro Obama 
opinion letters in the local Alexander City Outlook would probably be pretty proud of what his family and what the Democratic Party is trying to do down there. Um, so that's a bit of a fence post answer. But um, to, to the first part, everybody left alive. And, you know, I did a week of them and nobody ran me out of the state. I left voluntarily. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hope you'll sit and it's an interesting place. You can go and see it once once you read the book and there's a map there to help you find your way. But Lake Martin is truly one of the most beautiful places I've been in this country. And those man-made reservoirs are interesting and you're not far from Talladega Forest. And I hope that the book takes you to some parts of Alabama maybe you don't know. If you only know the industrial cities like Montgomery or Birmingham, you can sit with a, you know, sharecropper in Coosa County and a pulp order in Tallapoosa County and just think about a different kind of natural environment of the state. Was there anything that surprised you about Harper Lee? Oh, gosh, everything. <laughs> um, so I, I had the kind of classic um, would-be biographer's logical fallacy, which is that we had everything in common. It was going to be easy to write because I knew so much about her because I thought so much about myself like any solipsistic person. And, um, you know, I just thought, well, that's how I'll know what she thought and what she felt. And, oh, my gosh, we have nothing in common. <laughs> um, and, and nowhere was that clearer for me than um, to the question of Harper Lee and not writing. Harper Lee was a tremendously unhappy writer, and she had a very kind of ancient notion of the, the requirement of suffering and, you know, difficulty in that if your art were good, you had to suffer for it. And it took, you know, hours at the typewriter. She liked quoting Jean Fowler, who said, you know, you sit down to the typewriter and you wait for your forehead to bleed. And that is not me. <laughs> um, I love to write. I find it really fun. Um, I can't believe that it's a career. It's like robbing a bank. I can't believe people pay you to do it. And I thought at first those letters were kind of put on and that it was, you know, she was crying out for sympathy or they were exaggerated or performative for the people she was writing to. And you read enough of them and you realize, no, that's just how she felt. And she really did struggle and it was real. And I think that that surprised me. And it was also hard to take seriously and to represent in a way, you know, this book is filled with death and suffering and, you know, political suffering and that, that scale of suffering and to find a way to dramatize her suffering and to take it seriously and to render it, um, in a way that brought it to life was, was actually quite hard because I've never experienced writer's block and, and I didn't quite know what to make of it. But, um, luckily there's enough of her correspondence and I could talk to enough people who knew her about, that aspect of her writing life that, um, I think it, I think it works, but you know, it was a bit like paint drying. You've got this like history of life insurance at the beginning of the book and then writer's block at the end. So there's a lot of like seemingly boring things that I hope are actually kind of dramatic in context. But, um, yeah, that surprised me big time. I don't know what I thought she was doing. I guess I thought she was like pe playing the penny slots and just living a happy life, not like suffering for her art. But, um, it turns out she really was. Hi, you mentioned that religion has an allure for you and you cited some really weird uh, practices. Were these actual practices that the reverend engaged in that, that came out in testimony or are you kind of attributing things to him or, uh, do, and do people still 
practice those and believe in those things mm-hmm. and is it across races and what it, can you shed light on yeah on that sure that's a religion that's a great question and again to the things that i i tried to treat very sensitively and responsibly in the book so hoodoo voodoo root working you know these discrete systems of belief and and practices of belief in the south and around the world um are of course legitimate systems of belief and people practice them to this day and um there is a very rich religious history and it's not all superstition and it's not all supernaturalism. And there's a riff in the book that, you know, I felt the need to sort of tell you about where these practices came from and their syncretic nature and how they interacted with Christianity and some other kind of more dominant religions, not because the reverend practiced any of them. And in fact, that paragraph, there is no evidence that he could turn into a black cat, that he could move between places at warp speed. There is no evidence of any of that. And indeed, two journalists went to the reverend's home in the week between when his stepdaughter was found murdered and when he himself was murdered. And neither one of those journalists found any evidence of a voodoo room. Now, having said that, you know, part of the book's kind of ethnographic and religious history comes from some early folklore and, um, you know, anthropological scholars who made these tours of the rural South, and they actually had some trouble learning about hoodoo and voodoo and root working because outsiders are not welcomed into those communities. They are, you know, oral histories and oral traditions that are shared only within the belief system. And so even someone, you know, to my mind, one of the most fascinating um, folks who went and tried to learn about all of this was Zora Neale Hurston. And, you know, it's actually incredible when you go and you look through the scholarship, she is just there as a scholar, as, you know, and she, she took these tours of the South and took down folk songs and oral histories and did, you know, a tremendously large number of strange initiation rites to try and get people to share their knowledge with her or to share their catalogs with her. And there was a a white Episcopal priest who did the same thing named Harry Middleton Hyatt, who produced um, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of information about these practices. So that's what I'm drawing on to create that the first paragraph where I say like maybe he used um, law stay away oil and that sort of business. And so that comes from legitimate, you know, voodoo catalogs. You can still order from them today. You can go to New Orleans and there are voodoo shops where you can buy candles and that sort of thing. Um, The other paragraph, I'm not attributing anything to him. That other paragraph is truly, if you go back and you look at the contemporaneous newspaper coverage or you interview anybody in Coosa County, those are still the things they will tell you today the Reverend was capable of doing. Um, and that, that business about his neighbor. So there's this great letter from Harper Lee where she says, um, she doesn't believe the Reverend was a practitioner of voodoo, but she does believe he killed at least five people. And she says at least five, because there was this other death attributed to him, which was the neighbor. So the neighbor, um, actually had ALS and was not well. He died in a veterans hospital of pneumonia. So there's no real evidence the reverend did it. But I can tell you, if you go and you ask people in Coosa County, they say he was poisoned by the reverend and that it was a voodoo poison he used. So again, I'm not, that that's not me like inventing things. That's truly the kind of, you know, cacophony of voices around this case and the explanations that people came up with. Um, so 
there was a moment where I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't include this at all. There's no evidence he practiced voodoo. And yet you actually drain the case of a lot of the reality of what people felt and said and thought at the time if you don't write about it. And again, you're talking about a community where part of the reason you could attribute those practices and those beliefs and those powers to the reverend is there were hoodoo men in the area. And there were root workers in the area. And if you had a sore back, you didn't go to Selma to the hospital. You went to get a salve from somebody, you know, in the next town over. And I think that was kind of what was most interesting to me. Voodoo was always interracial. So it's typically black practitioners, but a lot of white clientele. Um, if you've ever read Stars Fell on Alabama, the Carl Carmer book, he actually goes to conjure country and he has a stiff back and he's worried about some ex of his who's giving him trouble. And he goes to see a root worker to get help with that. So um, I think, you know, there's there's a little bit there. And um, like everything else in the book, there, there are a lot of notes where if it's something that's of interest to you, there there is good contemporary scholarship on voodoo. Um, and there, there are a lot of folks working very hard to understand how the belief system evolved and how it's practiced today. Um, so, so there's a little bit of that in the book, just enough to remind you that it is real and it was possible for someone to be a voodoo priest. There's just no evidence that Willie Maxwell himself was. He was a Baptist minister. Not that you can't be a Baptist minister and a voodoo priest, because again, these are syncretic. You know, a lot of the a lot of the voodoo practitioners in New Orleans were practicing in Catholic churches. They were praying to Catholic saints. It was incredibly syncretic. So. But great question and truly, to my mind, one of the most fun research riffs in the book. Um, I just I really enjoyed getting to read a lot of a lot of good scholarship and a lot of bad scholarship, too. Uh, I'm afraid that's all we have time for tonight, but you can ask Casey a question in the signing line. Um, please join me in thanking Casey and in thanking Team Furious for the cake. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.